midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Is it really that simple? If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then Christianity is true. If he was not, then Christians are wasting their time. That is basically what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to get into that a lot today. Today we are talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a huge part of why I believe Christianity to be true. Uh, To put it another way, if you wanted me to leave Christianity, you would have to convince me the resurrection did not happen. And I believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. I believe it actually happened. It's not something to be spiritualized. I believe he was literally raised from the dead and then appeared to people in his resurrected body. And so, you know, that that's, uh, maybe maybe seems crazy to you right now. And, you know, you may be thinking, well, people are, you know, they're just Christians because it, you know, it's a way that they feel free from guilt. They get to live forever. It just helps them mentally. You know, it helps them to have hope and makes them feel better. So they choose to believe in all that fairy tale stuff. Well, I will admit, as a child and even as a teenager, I was a Christian because I had faith that what my parents, teachers, pastor, you know, told me was true. Now I can honestly say I believe it because I do think it's true. And that, again, that's what this podcast is about. It's why I believe what I believe. So today, in talking about the resurrection, I'm going to use a minimal facts argument to give my reasons for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, these are not my, this is not my idea. I heard this initially from Dr. Gary Habermas, and as far as I know, he's the originator of this type of argument for the resurrection. Um, and the first time I heard it, 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 was, uh, it was a game changer for me. I was blown away. I had never considered this approach to uh, thinking about reasons to believe the resurrection. So again, Dr. Gary Habermas is sort of the originator of this, and then an, another person to look up um, that these two are, are really big on this uh, minimal facts argument is Dr. Mike Lacona. So see the episode notes below, and, and I'll uh, link some videos and stuff like that up for you. Um, so the reason that he calls it minimal facts is because these minimal facts are widely accepted even among critical scholars. And when I say critical scholars, because I, I may use that a lot in the, in the upcoming weeks, when I say critical scholars, I mean bona fide experts in the field of New Testament studies who are not Christians. They are critical of Christianity. They do not believe Jesus was raised from the dead, um, so that, but they're experts in the field. And so now these minimal facts are not the only reason I believe the resurrection, but they are sufficient in defending my belief in the resurrection. So all counter theories must try to explain all of these minimal facts. All right, so here's the basic outline for today. I'm going to list the minimal facts for you. I'm going to explain how we arrive at these facts. And then, and then in closing, I'll, you know, how understanding the resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed my view of heaven and eternity, that sort of thing. So that's kind of the basic outline for today. Now, originally, I was going to try to cover 
the resurrection, you know, all the stuff I stated before, and the counter arguments to the resurrection, and it is just way too much for one episode. So I'm actually breaking this up into a part one and a part two. So that will be next week. But that gives you an opportunity to contribute to the show. So is there something about Jesus' resurrection you find difficult to believe? Do you find the whole thing crazy? You know, if, So if you hear something today that you do not understand or disagree with, all of those reasons, please email me those uh, questions or concerns. And so you can actually, if you email it quick enough, and if you're listening to this within the first few days of when it's posted, then you'll be able to uh, kind of contribute to next week's episode. So I record these shows in advance, of course. So get your questions in as soon as possible. Any question in by Wednesday, September 15th at midnight, I will try to address on the next episode. And so if you are listening to this later than that, don't feel bad. Please still email me if you have any questions or whatever. I would love to you know, get you some resources or further explain myself or whatever. So, um, so don't feel bad if you're listening to this like months or, or years, years down the road. But uh, get those emails to me. I'd be happy to, to connect with you. Now, you can message me at bearchristianity at gmail.com. That's probably the main one. And then I'm also on Instagram at the real bear Martin. And then if you have not already uh, taken time to do so, please leave a five-star rating and write a short positive review for this podcast. So five-star ratings and good reviews are ways that this podcast spreads to other people who are searching for this type of material. Now, if you've listened to all the previous episodes, you know that right around here is when I include a special part of the show called A Bear in the Woods, and this is a special week because today I'm answering my first listener question. When I got this email, I just felt so special that someone actually emailed me a question for A Bear in the Woods. Here it is. Bear, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? All right, now, as I was thinking about this over the course of the week, one of my favorite movies is Back to the Future. The ability to travel in time, I think, would be really cool. Uh, you know, spoiler alert: in the second one, the bad guy gets the time machine and he uh, discovers this sports almanac, and so he goes, you know, into the past and places all these bets on games that where he knows who's going to win, right? And so he makes a bunch of money. So. Uh, that was, uh, I always thought, oh man, that would be cool to, to uh, you know, be like a billionaire because you know exactly what's going to happen, that sort of thing. So time travel has always intrigued me, yet uh, I, I'm a perfectionist. And so I think if I had the ability to travel in time, I would constantly be going back and trying to, to fix everything. And so then there would be like hundreds of me back in time trying to fix all the other problems that I've created now and it would just be a mess <laughs> if I could travel in time. So we're going to leave that one out. I, I think truly what I would pick would be the ability to heal people. And so now you may be thinking, oh great, you know, now what a what a great guy. He's choosing to help others with his special power, superpower. But no, it's still a selfish answer because in my job, I'm an eye doctor, if you didn't know that. You know, I do get to help people. And so when you see that look on their face of, of like when you've been able to help them, maybe they can see better now, they've got new glasses or contacts, or maybe they had a, like a bad eye infection and they were worried they were going to go blind or something like that. And then you're able to help them. That look on their face is, is intoxicating. It is really 
awesome to see uh, and, and to, to be a part of that. And so to be able to just like walk through a hospital and heal people, especially in this time, would on a very selfish level would be really gratifying. I mean, <laughs> that would just be a really cool experience. So I think that's what it would be. I think it would be the superpower of healing people. So that's my opinion on it. And that is a bear in the woods. All right, before we get started with the main part of our show, just a few odds and ends. Although I believe the entire Bible to be the inspired Word of God, I will not need to use it that way today. Okay, so I'm only going to be using the Bible as an ancient historical source. And so how do we know anything about Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar? It's through these ancient documents, okay? So obviously, these great leaders... Uh, they have statues and things like that. But how do we know the stories about them? In school, when you read through a history book, you know, you, you, you read these stories as if they're just, oh, yeah, of course that happened. But how do we know? And the reason that we have these stories is because somebody a long time ago wrote them down. Now, we don't actually have, when we're talking about ancient history, we don't have a, you know, the actual journal of, you know, Alexander the Great's secretary who followed him around and, and wrote down these things. I mean, we just don't have it. It's, it's gone. We, you know, we'll probably never find it. And so what we actually have are documents that are written hundreds of years after Alexander the Great lived. And so we're, we're essentially trusting those documents that they're conveying accurate information. But there's, you know, there's often hundreds of years of a gap between when Alexander the Great actually lived and the stories that we read about him, okay? And so that happens with the New Testament as well, but the New Testament manuscripts, which, we, which have been discovered, are earlier and more numerous than any other manuscript evidence for any writing in antiquity, all right? So basically, if you throw out the Bible as a historical resource, again, I'm not talking about the Bible as the inspired Word of God, but just simply as a historical resource. If you throw that out and say, oh, we can't trust it because it was, you know, the, the documents that we have are written after the fact, then you've got to get rid of a lot of other historical evidence. Because again, the Bible has earlier manuscripts and more numerous than any other writing in antiquity. Okay? So, Let's get on to the, and, and there's going to be a lot more about that when I do an episode on why I believe the Bible and how we got our Bible and that sort of thing. All right, so on to the minimal facts. Remember, all of these facts are widely accepted by critical scholars of the New Testament. All right, so here we are. Here's the minimal facts for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, his disciples had experiences as individuals and groups in which they believed they saw the risen Jesus. Number three, Jesus' resurrection was preached from the very beginning of Christianity, and his disciples were willing to die for what they were preaching. Now, here's a side note. Notice I said willing to die. So most of the stories of the disciples being martyred are only found in later reports, okay? So there is some first century evidence that Peter, James, and Paul were martyred for their faith. Uh, but even that is not accepted among critical scholars. Some of them do, some of them don't. You know, there's different arguments for all kinds of different reasons. 
And so you you may hear this a lot. I, I know I did as a, you know, growing up in a Christian setting. Well, if Christianity wasn't true, then why did all the disciples die for their faith? And that's, it's fine to believe that, and they may have, but as far as having evidence for that, we don't have it for all of the disciples. We do have decent evidence for Peter, uh, James, and Paul. But again, it's not well accepted, so that's why I'm not uh, using that in my argument. All right, and then so number four, is, and this is the last one of the minimal facts, Paul, initially an enemy of Christianity, also had an experience in which he believed he saw the risen Jesus, and this changed his life. So those are, those are the four basic minimal facts. Now, if you listen to Gary Habermas or Mike Lacona, their minimal facts will just vary a little bit, but that's the basic gist of it. Now, notice I did not mention the empty tomb. Despite a lot of evidence for the empty tomb, critical scholars do not agree on this fact as well. And so uh, in the next episode, we're going to get into why that may be the case and some of the different arguments and things like that. Uh, But Rome often left people on the cross to just decay. And despite these portrayals of the cross being this super high thing where people are, are really high off the ground, actually most of the time the crosses were quite low. So their feet were almost right at the ground. And so a lot of times the dogs and different animals and stuff would come by and eat the decaying bodies. I know, pretty nasty. But uh, Rome would just, I mean, they didn't, Rome was, they crucified people all the time. And so they just didn't care. And so they would just leave them on the cross and, and animals would come eat the bodies and, and the crows and all, you know, that sort of thing. Also, sometimes Rome would throw the crucified bodies into these mass graves. So that's that's kind of the two thoughts by some of the critical scholars when they think about what happened to Jesus' body after he died on the cross. Now, contrary to that, there are reports of Rome allowing Jews to bury the crucified bodies because the, the Jewish burial was an important part of that culture. And so there are some reports that that was allowed. And so th- it, it gets a little uh, tricky. And so, mo- again, more on the empty tomb in the next episode. Now, these minimal facts, how did I arrive at these minimal facts? And this is really important. Now, so we're going to start with Saul. Saul was a Pharisee who's like a, a, the religious elite. Just think about the religious elite of the Jews. He was a Pharisee who was hunting down Christians. So we meet him in Acts 7, and he oversees the execution of a Christian named Stephen. So essentially, Saul is watching over the coats of the men who are stoning Stephen to death. And basically, he's like he's he's the leader over this execution, and so then Saul is going to travel to Damascus to find and imprison, possibly kill more Christians. And Jesus appears to him in his resurrected body on the way to Damascus, and Saul converts to Christianity. This completely changed Saul's life, and then Saul's name was changed to Paul. You can think of Paul as his Christian name. And he became a missionary throughout the Roman Empire. And he wrote several letters to churches throughout Rome that most of these churches he had uh, established himself during his missionary journeys. And so those letters make up a lot of the New Testament. And so critical scholars almost unanimously agree on seven of Paul's letters as being written by Paul. There's some discrepancy as to who wrote the other letters, and, but the only ones I'm going to use today, I'm just going to need two of these well-accepted letters, 1 Corinthians and Galatians, all right? Now, 
Paul's letter to Corinthians, he started a church in Corinth, and so his letter to them, he, he wrote a few. First, Corinthians 15 is where is really the meat of these minimal facts. So he likely wrote this letter around 55 AD, and just for a reference, Jesus was crucified in 30 AD. Some scholars think it was 33 for different reasons, but 30 is the majority view, and also the math is a lot easier, so let's just go with 30, all right? Here's what Paul said to the church in Corinth, and he's writing this in 55 AD after he had already established the church, and so now he's writing them a letter. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, that is to Paul. Okay. Now, notice this message, Paul says, is of first importance and is something Paul received. And then Paul goes on to quote a creed, And the reason I know it's a creed is because that's what the scholars have told me. (laughs) That's basically it, because I do not read Greek. Greek was what the New Testament was uh, originally written in. But people who read Greek can pick up on these types of things because the grammar changes. And so think about uh, when you're having a conversation with someone and they throw in a quote, it sounds different than the way they normally say things. So if we're used to, a, like if we grow up speaking English, we, there's little subtleties and we know that they are quoting something else just because it doesn't quite sound like them. In a similar way, that is how people who read uh, Greek, when they're reading the New Testament, they, they pick up on these things. And there's several of these little uh, creeds or um, what's thought to be like early church hymns throughout the New Testament uh, because there's, there's a certain rhythm. It's almost like a... Um, it's almost like poetry, you know, in, in the way that this reads. And so this, this is the part, this creed is, is where Paul starts saying that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. You know, that, that sort of thing was very likely a creed, and it was something that Paul received. It was of first importance, and it was something he received. And so, and this, this idea that this is some sort of creed or something that would have been quoted a lot, is well accepted among critical scholars because, of, again, because of the Greek grammar and that sort of thing. So Paul, where did Paul receive this from? What, what's the, the timeline here? So again, Jesus is crucified in 30 AD, and then Paul converts to Christianity likely within one to two years of Jesus' crucifixion. Again, well accepted. And so according to Galatians 1 and 2, at, right after Paul converts to Christianity, he tells us that he went to Arabia for three years. Then he returned to Jerusalem and met with Peter for 15 days. So let's go back to our timeline. Jesus is crucified in 30. Let's assume Paul, Paul is going to convert to Christianity in one to two years. So let's just say two. So that is 32 AD. Then Paul goes for three years to Arabia. So now that's 35 AD. And then he meets with in Jerusalem with Peter for 15 days. So we're talking about roughly five years after Jesus' crucifixion, Paul is going to meet with Peter. 
and also just a just a note here Peter is called Cephas or Cephas in some translations and that that Cephas that's C E P H A S and so basically it's just the Peter's name rendered in two different languages Peter is Greek for Petros and then Cephas is Aramaic and so it's the same person if you if you come across that now, Paul, it said he went to visit with Peter. Now, the Greek word used here is historesi, historesi. Now, what English word do you think comes from this word? Well, hope, hopefully, I think all my listeners are pretty sharp people. It's history, right? And so there's a, Laonida is a Greek lexicon, and basically that they look at how different words are used in the Greek language and come up with you know, definitions of those words. And so this historesi is to visit with the purpose of obtaining information, to gather history, okay? And so to visit with the purpose of obtaining information. So when Paul says he met with Peter or visited Peter, it's not just, oh, hey, Peter, I'm Paul. You know, nice to meet you. How's the family? How many kids do you have? Where do you work? You know, no, Paul is meeting with a specific purpose, and they are talking about the gospel, and he, he is wanting to obtain information from Peter. And so it is a common belief that Paul received this creed, this, this message that he's delivering to, in, to the church in Corinth. He says it's of first importance and it's what he received. It's believed that Paul received this message from this meeting with Peter. Now, he may have heard this creed earlier, but at the very least, it is confirmed at this meeting with Peter. And this is, again, this is only five years after the crucifixion. So we started out 25 years off with Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians, but now using the history of, again, Galatians, a well-accepted book by critical scholars, then now we're within five years of Jesus' crucifixion. We, we already have this creed. And then several scholars, even critical scholars, will date that this creed, because when Paul heard it, it was already in this creedal form, so this creed likely, it could have been established as early as the, the same year Jesus was crucified or maybe just a few years after that. And so we have this, this preaching from the early church that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again and appeared to individuals and groups of people. We have this as a very, very early teaching from the church. And this is... this. This preaching of Jesus' resurrection is what powered the church early on. This is the reason that Christians were telling, you know, telling people about Christianity because of the resurrection. They were not going around just saying, you know, this this Jesus, he, well, he died, but he was a really good moral teacher. I mean, he just had a lot of really good life lessons. So I think we should devote our whole lives to him. Uh, even though we we are at risk of being killed. No, that is not the reason that, that Christianity spread. The reason is because these people be, that Jesus appeared to in his resurrected body believed that he truly was risen from the dead. And this is not some legend that developed decades or hundreds of years later about Jesus' resurrection. We have historical proof here that this was an early teaching from Christianity, and that is so important when uh, w- when we think about the resurrection, because if it was something that developed hundreds of years later, then it's very easy to say, well, this is probably just kind of a, a legend that developed. But this is early on, so it's so important. Now, 
So this, you know, I've talked about this meeting at the five-year mark with Peter. Then Paul goes off and he is, you know, establishing churches and preaching the gospel. And then in Galatians 2, it says he returned 14 years later and he met again in Jerusalem with Peter, James, and John. So he meets with the leaders of Christianity in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was kind of like the Christian headquarters. So Paul is coming back to Christian headquarters And Paul says, I told them what I had been preaching, essentially, on these uh, missionary trips. So, you know, they they basically sit down to this meeting and say, okay, here's what I'm preaching. Is it consistent with what you're preaching? Let's make sure that we're all on the same page here. And in Galatians 2.6, Paul says, they added nothing to me, essentially saying Paul was already preaching the correct message of the gospel. They were all preaching the same thing. And again, what was Paul preaching? Well, we a lot of things, but we know that what was of first importance to Paul in what he preached was this creed that he had received. So these are the basic building blocks for why I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not a legend. It is something that was preached very early on. And so when you have something super early, when, when this creed's developed one to two years after Jesus' death, it's really easy for people to kind of check up on that. And, and talk to other you know, eyewitnesses who were there when Jesus was killed and when Jesus rose from the dead. It's, it's easy to check up on that. It's a lot harder if it's you know, 100 years out that this you know, legend starts developing. You, you, can't, you can't check up on it nearly as well. So th- again, this 1 Corinthians passage, this creed, and how we can establish that this was something that was preached very early on, that is a basic building block for me for why I believe it, it's extremely reasonable to believe Jesus was raised from the dead. So, uh, you know, this is not some message Paul heard from somebody who heard it from somebody else, who heard it from somebody's cousin. You know, no, he heard it directly from Peter, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose on the third day. He showed himself alive, according to this creed, six different times. And there are other accounts in the Gospels and we're not even talking about those. We're just talking about this creed. He showed himself six different times, and so to three individuals and three groups. So Peter, James, and Paul individually, and then three groups, the 12, the 500, and the apostles, as you go back and read through that creed. Paul's complete change of life, giving up a life. He was a, a popular and prestigious religious leader in Jerusalem with a... a a big-time career ahead of him. So for him to give that up and become a traveling missionary, constantly being beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and yet never wavered from denying the gospel he preached, which he heard firsthand from the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then was, that was confirmed by Peter. You know, for Paul to completely change his life is a powerful testimony to me. And so that, again, this is kind of the foundations for why I believe uh, the resurrection actually happened, that um, because of Paul's change of life. When you think about uh, people that, like religious leaders that have this vision from God, and then they, um, you know, they, things change and, and they start teaching other people about this, Paul is, uh, I mean, his, his life from a, from a physical standpoint, just like an earthly life, standpoint, it gets way worse for him. A lot of religious teachers, even in today's time, who claim to have a vision from God, 
typically that is something that makes them very popular, often wealthy, um, and, you know, that sort of thing. So they, they're haters, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of prestige to that. And I think Paul is different in that he gives all of that up and is basically constantly, <laughs> constantly struggling uh, for the rest of his life, but he's preaching the gospel the whole time. Now, you know, I've, I've given my reasons for believing, but as you'll hear next week, there's always room to doubt. There is always room to disbelieve, but there are excellent reasons to believe that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. In Christianity, faith is not blind and stupid. Faith is not believing in something even though you know it can't possibly be true. Faith, Christian faith, uses both, both reason and perception, it is not, but it is not limited by either one of those. So a common illustration for faith is a chair. If one sees a chair and that it's well-built, he doesn't know for sure the chair will hold him until he has faith and puts his weight on the chair as he sits down. Christian faith is not wishing a chair would be there and just trying to sit down on air, knowing that there's nothing there but just having faith, right? That, that is not a, an accurate illustration for Christian faith. Also, God does not require us to have faith in some rickety old chair, which is on the edge of falling apart. It's as if he knows a little bit about carpentry, and he's given us a solid chair to exercise our faith in, right? So God does not require Christians to follow him in stupidity. He gives reasons for believing. Now, these reasons may not be convincing enough for all people, but there are good reasons to believe. Now, I'm going to share a bear's biscuit here with you. This is a little treat for my listeners. One of my favorite movies, it's called The Case for Christ. Now, it's a movie, but it's based on the book by Lee Strobel. Um, And this is a true story. As an atheist, he's angry at his wife when she becomes a Christian and then he sets out to disprove Christianity by investigating the resurrection. So he's an investigative journalist and, and an atheist, and so he's going to use his investigative skills to disprove the resurrection. And true story, really great movie. It's, it's really well done. It's my favorite Christian movie. Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, a lot of Christian movies are quite cheesy to me. And so, but this one is, this one is really good. It used to be on Netflix, but I checked last night and it's not up there anymore. So hopefully you can find it. It's called The Case for Christ. And the, um, I don't know who directed it, but it's based on a book by Lee Strobel. So that's how you know if you have the right movie, if you're, if you're looking it up. Now, the last point I wanted to make today is how understanding the resurrection changed my view of heaven. Now, no, I'm not going to, you know, oh, I'm stepping away from this assumption that the Bible is just uh, this historical data, which is what I've kind of the point of view that I've argued from before. Now I'm kind of stepping back into the Christian worldview, and so I'm just believing that the Bible is is the inspired Word of God, which is what I believe. All right, so now I'm talking from the, the Christian perspective. Do you ever worry that you'll be bored in heaven I used to think this way as well. And so as a Christian, eternity will not consist of me becoming a fat baby with tiny little wings, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, looking at my watch and wondering if this church service is ever going to end, right? That, that's not what eternity is. 
resurrect, the resurrection changes things. And so the resurrection to a transformed physical body is a hope of the future that we all long for. So throughout the New Testament, it's a clear message that we will one day be resurrected just like Jesus was raised. So do you want adventure, exploration? Do you crave escape from mundane life and desire a purpose? Do you feel trapped as if there is something more? I know this is all starting to sound like an infomercial, but in the resurrection, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And those who have been united with Jesus Christ through faith, they will live forever in a resurrected body on the new heaven and the new earth. And so we will live in a perfect world without sin, death, disease, aging, and the resurrection to a transformed body will mean that there will be sight and taste and sounds and touch. All of this beyond our imagination, our our senses will be even more heightened because they are not dampered by death, disease, you know, aging, that, those sorts of things. So you're not trapped on a cloud with a harp. You will have adventure, exploring the wonders of the new heaven and the new earth. And eternity is not just some ethereal, spiritual half-existence. It is exactly what you currently long for. Now, what separates us from this eternity with God, and that is sin, which I've covered in previous episodes. Jesus Christ's resurrection is the vindication of, of Jesus Christ. He is who he said he is, and he did what he said he would do, and that is to forgive us of our sins. And so after the creed in 1 Corinthians, just a few verses later, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So the greatest thing about the resurrection is is not this, I mean, it will be great, but it's not that we get to explore this you know, new world and have adventure. I mean, that those, I just wanted to, to mention that because eternity will be a joyous, exciting eternity. You're not going to be bored out of your mind on a cloud with a harp, okay? But the greatest thing about the resurrection will be the fullness of your relationship with God. For only a relationship with your Creator will allow you to fulfill your purpose. People are always asking, what's my purpose in life? Well, what if you knew the answer to that and you were in the perfect position to pursue that and enjoy that pursuit? Our purpose in this life and in the resurrection is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And realizing all of this was a game changer for me as far as how I looked at eternity. So in closing, today I've given you the positive case for my belief in resurrection. Of course, these minimal facts are not the only reason I believe, but for, for me personally, I believe you know, the Bible is the Word of God, so there's, there's other reasons for me to believe in the resurrection. But these minimal facts certainly strengthened that belief once I heard this argument even more. For a closing verse, I want to share this. It's Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And this is so true. So I've presented these minimal facts today, and they are, they are like a stronghold of defense against all the different counter theories of the resurrection. But just like Proverbs says, you know, it, my way may seem right, but until you've investigated the other side of things, you know, it, it just seems right. And, and so the other one that comes and examines can kind of pick that apart. And so I'm trying. Next episode, I'm going to try to be as um, as open and and honest with myself as possible, and look at all the different 
things, uh, all the different counter arguments, and let's see if they hold up to these minimal facts at best. So remember to get those emails in to bearchristianity at gmail.com and so I can try to cover them next week and I will see you then.